Hey everyone, thanks for checking out the River Community Church podcast. If you want more information about the church or things that are going on, you can visit therivercc.com or you can check out our app at app.therivercc.com. This week's message comes from Pastor Brian Vaughn. I am not Steve Taboo. Uh, and if, uh, if you're joining us for the first time, whether it's online or in the room, uh, Steve Taboo is our, our lead pastor. And he is going to be um, out from his normal everyday um, responsibilities uh, for the next two months. He's going to be spending time really seeking the Lord. He's going to be spending time at other churches uh, with other pastors that do the same thing that, that he does and uh, hoping to, to learn from them, to learn from, from the Lord. And so uh, there are going to be a few of us kind of filling in for him. I get to hang out with you for the next three weeks. And if that worries you, don't worry. There's somebody else coming behind me. So um, there's... Uh, <laughs> oh, thanks, Jason. Uh, were you excited that somebody else is coming? Is that... Okay. Uh, Buddy Pierce is going to be with us for a couple of weeks. And then Steve Chapman is going to spend a few weeks with us uh, as well. Uh, but I'm excited to, to be with you. I was uh, thinking about this week's uh, readings. And if you, uh, if you don't know, we've been reading through the Bible together. We've been using the daily Bible in chronological order. And uh, so we're, we're hopefully that there's many of you that are, that are jumping in that with us. Um, and so on Sunday mornings, then, some of what we're talking about is coming from the, the week's readings. And I was thinking about it, and we're, we're in these books of Kings and Chronicles, and then some prophets are going to be thrown in there. And it can be a little confusing. It's a lot of history, so to speak. And I love history. Uh, I don't know about you, uh, but I do. I, I enjoy different periods of, of our history. And I think the important thing about it is that we learn from it, right? We learn from the positive aspects of our history. Uh, we learn from the negative aspects and we need to have an accurate view of our history. And we, for the most part, if, if you're in this room, you're at least interested in, or someone drug you here, you're either interested in Jesus or or you're actively following and pursuing him. And if that's who you are, then a part of our history is Israel's history that is mapped out in the Old Testament. And we're at this point where it gets a little bit confusing uh, because we, we were talking about these guys and uh, talking about just one unified kingdom or nation of Israel, and then it just it splits up from here. And I never really understood that until I was probably an adult. And I grew up in the church. I grew up going to church uh, every time the doors were open, as the phrase goes, uh, but I never fully really understood uh, what that history looked like and why there are different kingdoms and who is all that. So my hope this morning is that we bring a little bit of clarity to that. As we do see, and if you were reading with us, you saw a big heading in this week's reading that said the divided kingdom. And so I hope to bring uh, a little light to that. If you already understand it, then uh, don't check out. There might be some things for you too, okay? Um, I've learned some things, especially in this year's reading as we've, as we've walked, walked through it. In fact, we're gonna start 
back a little ways in Deuteronomy 17, if you want to turn there. But first, I want to give a little bit of background. Uh, This nation of Israel came from one family. And that family goes all the way back to a guy named Abraham. And Abraham was someone that the Lord sought out. And he said, I'm going to I'm gonna restore my blessing to all the peoples of the earth through you, Abraham, and through your family. He made some promises to Abraham. He said, I'll make you into a great nation. I am going to give you a great name. And all the peoples of the earth will be blessed through you. And spoiler alert, well, it's not alert, I'm gonna spoil it. Eventually, all the Nations and all the peoples of the earth are blessed through Jesus. And Jesus is the fulfillment of those promises. But it took us a while to get there, okay? So you've got this one family, Abraham and Sarah. They have a son named Isaac, and that the promise is passed through Isaac, and then through Isaac's son, Jacob. And then Jacob has a family, and that family becomes the 12 tribes of Israel. And at some point in their story, they find themselves in Egypt. And it's really in Egypt that they grow into a nation. They grow into thousands and thousands and thousands of people. So much so that they threaten, it's, it's a threat to the king of, of Egypt, who we call Pharaoh, as uh, most typically called Pharaoh. And Pharaoh put them into slavery. And Even in slavery, even as they are enslaved, they become a a nation who we became, who we called the nation of Israel. And that's taken from Jacob. At one point, Jacob's name is turned to Israel, is changed to Israel by God. And so his descendants, it's called Israel. And at a certain point, the people of God, they cry out. They cry out to the Lord. They cry out in their slavery. They cry out in their misery and says that the Lord heard their cries. And so he raised up a man named Moses to be their deliverer, to go into Egypt, to deliver them from slavery and to take them into the promises of God. And so Moses does that, goes to Egypt. They, through many miracles and signs and wonders and the intervention of God, they come out of slavery and they're headed towards the promised land. The land that that God had promised way back to, to Abraham. But then they hit a snag. Because as they're at the, just at the border of, of that promised land, they become afraid. They take their eyes off of God and his promises for them. And because of their fear, they miss out on walking into those promises. And an entire generation misses out on the promises of God because of their fear and their lack of trust in God. Then Joshua becomes the leader. Moses dies, Joshua becomes the leader of Israel, and he does actually lead them into this promised land. And towards the end of his life, after they've kind of walked into this, he gives them a warning, and he says, look, guys, if you walk in the ways of the Lord and trust him wholly, then all, it will go well with you in this land. But if you don't, there's gonna be trouble and it's gonna be hard. 
And he says, as for me and my house, we're gonna choose to serve the Lord. And the people of Israel, they said, yeah, we will too. And Joshua said, no, you won't. <laughs> I know you too well. Like, no, we will, we'll, we'll follow the Lord. He's like, okay, prove it. <laughs> he didn't exactly say that, but it's in my paraphrase. He said, prove it. And so they go out and then they enter into this cycle and the theme verse of the book of Judges is this, that the people did what was evil in the eyes of the Lord. They didn't keep up, keep up their part of the covenant. They didn't follow the Lord with everything they had. They did what was evil in the eyes of the Lord. So we see this cycle. The people turn away from the Lord and usually some other nation around them or some other group oppresses them sometimes enslaves them again. Then God raises up a judge and don't think of like a judge sitting in a courtroom, but, but as someone who's more like a tribal leader, a leader raises up and, uh, and then delivers them, bring deli- brings deliverance to them. And then they repent, the people repent, they walk with the Lord and then they just start the cycle over and over and over again. And so for a period of about 200 years, that's what the nation of Israel looked like just repeating this cycle of doing what was evil in the eyes of the Lord. And most of those judges, those people that God raised up, there were a couple of good ones, but for the most part, they were pretty lousy too. And I remember as as I've read through the, the scriptures this year, just being almost, well, I was disgusted as I read through the book of Judges just by the actions of some of the people. And it was a picture of what it looks like when you do what's evil in the eyes of the Lord. When you choose not to walk with the Lord, this is what it looks like. But then the people say, you know what, God, we want a king. And God said, I'm supposed to be your king. And they're like, yeah, 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 but that's not good enough. We want a king like all the nations around us. We want a human king to lead us and to stand for the things that, that we want to stand for to protect us. We, we want a king. And God gives them what they wanted. And so they are no longer a people or a nation, but then they become the kingdom of Israel. But it's funny, if you go back, this is where we're gonna start in Deuteronomy uh, 17. This was, oh, probably 250 years or 260 years before this point. God said, I know you're gonna ask for a king. And in the law, in Deuteronomy 17, he writes this. He says, you're about to enter the land the Lord your God is giving you. And when you take it over and settle there, you may think, we should select a king to rule over us like the other nations around us. And if this happens, because he knows it's going to, if this happens, be sure to select as king the man the Lord your God chooses. You must appoint a fellow Israelite He may not be a foreigner. And then some guidelines for this king. The king must not build up a large stable of horses for himself or send his people to Egypt to buy horses for the Lord has told you, you must never return to Egypt. Egypt is where they were enslaved for 400 years. The king must not take many wives for himself because they will turn his heart away from the Lord. And he must not accumulate large amounts of wealth in silver and gold for himself. 
And when he sits on the throne as king, he must copy for himself this body of instruction on a scroll in the presence of the Levitical priests. It could be talking about this little section or he could be talking about the, the whole law. What we have become known as the law, he had the Ten Commandments and then all of these guidelines that God had given them for being a people, being a community, being the people of God, living because they had been in slavery and, and it was determined for them how they should live. And so God gave them the law to, to help them to see this is what it looks like to be the people of God, to live in community. He said, he must write this down on a scroll. And he must always, the king, must always keep the copy with him and read it daily as long as he lives. That way, he will learn to fear the Lord his God by obeying all the terms of these instructions and decrees. And this regular reading will prevent him from becoming proud and acting as if he is above his fellow citizens. It will also prevent him from turning away from these commands in the smallest way. And it will ensure that he and his descendants will reign for many generations in Israel. God said, when you ask for a king, this is how the kings should live. And in fact, when any of them becomes a king, I want them to write, write this law, write these instructions, these commandments down and live in them daily so that they'll know what it looks like to be a good king. They'll know what it looks like to live with their, their fellow citizens and not think of themselves more highly. And it will also prevent him from turning away from these commands in the smallest way. I love that. So for him, for the king that God, that the, the people would ask for and that God would raise up, this should be his relationship with the scriptures. I think that's just a note for us. Say, like, why should we read this thing? Why should we read this collection of writings? Why should we read it? Well, help us to know who we are. It will help us not to think of ourselves more highly than we ought and not to put ourselves above each other. And it will help us to walk with the Lord. So that was God's design. If you're gonna have a king, this is who he needs to be. This is what he needs to do. And so fast forward back to where we were. We've come through the period of the judges. The people said we want a king. And so God gives them a king. The first king in Israel was a man named Saul. And Saul was not a great example of a king. He was very paranoid. I think he probably had some mental illness going on, just the way he reads as you read through 1 Samuel. And he was always worried about his status, about his power, about his position. And God raised up another king named David. And David became like the crowning jewel, so to speak, of the kings of Israel. He was the one that they were all kind of judged against. In fact, scripture memorializes David as a man after God's own heart. And you're like, how can that be? I know some of the things that David did. He did some horrible things. But when he did those horrible things, when he was confronted with his sin or his rebellion, he repented. He turned to the Lord and said, Lord, forgive me. Create in me a clean heart. 
And the other thing I think that sets David apart from most of these kings that are coming, that, are, that we're talking about, that we're reading about, is that he never led the people to worship other gods. He always, for his life, pointed them towards the Lord, the God of Israel, the creator of heaven and earth. But some of his predecessors did not do the same. So the kings of Israel, starts off with Saul, then goes to David, then goes to David's son, Solomon. And Solomon starts out really good. We talked about that if you were here a couple weeks ago. God said, Solomon, I'll give you whatever you ask for. And Solomon asked for wisdom. He started off really well. But then towards the end of his life, well, through the mid part and the, and the end of his life, he kind of took a fall. And towards the end of his life, we're gonna jump back to 1 Kings chapter 11 right now. These are the consequences when these kings chose not to walk with the Lord. In 1 Kings 11, starting in verse four. In Solomon's old age, they turned his heart, they being his many foreign wives. And he had very, very many, very, very many of them. He had a lot of, I don't that's whatever. He had a bunch. And they were from, from other places. Sounds a little bit like, Deuteronomy 17. Well, yeah, just listen. So in Solomon's old age, they, the many wives, turned his heart to worship other gods instead of being completely faithful to the Lord his God, as his father David had been. Solomon worshiped Ashtoreth, the goddess of the Sidonians, and Molech, the detestable god of the Ammonites. In this way, Solomon did what was evil in the Lord's sight. He refused to follow the Lord completely as his father David had done. On the Mount of Olives, east of Jerusalem, he even built a pagan shrine for Chemosh, the detestable god of Moab, and another for Molech, the detestable god of the Ammonites. Solomon built such shrines for all his foreign wives to use for burning incense and sacrificing to their gods. The Lord was very angry with Solomon, rightly so. For his heart had turned away from the Lord, the God of Israel, who had appeared to him twice. And he warned Solomon specifically about worshiping other gods, but Solomon did not listen to the Lord's commands. So now the Lord said to him, since you have not kept my covenant and have disobeyed my decrees, I will surely tell the, tear the kingdom away from you and give it to one of your servants. And we'll meet later a guy named Jeroboam. Can you say Jeroboam? Jeroboam. Uh, this is a guy that's gonna enter into the story in just a moment. We're not gonna tell his whole story, but... We'll talk about him a bit. But for the sake of your father, David, I will not do this while you are still alive. I will take the kingdom away from your son. And his son that he's talking about is Rehoboam. Can you say that? Rehoboam. So we got Jeroboam, we'll get to, and we got Rehoboam. And I'm still probably not pronouncing him correctly, but that's what we're gonna go with. And even so, I will not take away the entire kingdom. I will let him, Rehoboam, be king of one tribe for the sake of my servant, David, and for the sake of Jerusalem, my chosen city. So Solomon had turned his eyes away from the Lord and worshiped other gods. 
And here, I think, is the principle that, that continues throughout all of these kings is that a divided heart has the power to divide a kingdom. Solomon's heart was divided. It was divided between walking with the ways of the Lord, and he knew that, and God even said, hey, I even appeared to you a couple of times, and you still turned your eyes off of me and put them on these other gods. His divided heart divided a kingdom. But for the sake of David, I'm not going to take it away. It's funny how the Lord still holds David up in this high regard. And so we get to the end of Solomon's life and his son Rehoboam, say Rehoboam again, Rehoboam becomes king. And the kingdom's not yet divided, but it's getting ready to be. Now turn the page over to chapter 12 and we're gonna read about Rehoboam. So Rehoboam went to Shechem, the city, uh, where all Israel had gathered to make him king. And when Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, heard of this, which, who was a servant of, of Solomon, God had appeared to him uh, and said, hey, I'm going to, this kingdom's gonna divide and you're gonna be a king. Um, Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, heard of this. He returned from Egypt for he had fled to Egypt to escape from King Solomon. The leaders of Israel summoned him and Jeroboam and the whole assembly of Israel went to speak with Rehoboam. Your father, talking to Rehoboam, your father was a hard master, talking about Solomon. They said, lighten the harsh labor demands and heavy taxes that your father imposed on us, then we will be your loyal subjects. Towards the end of Solomon's life, he had, he had enslaved some of his people, had these uh, high taxes to pay for, for not only the temple, but his, his own palace and his own home. And the people came to Rehoboam and said, Rehoboam, if you'll just lighten up the load a little bit and don't charge these extreme taxes because the Lord knows there's enough money in the kingdom. If you'll do that, then we will serve you. We will be loyal subjects. We'll be loyal citizens to your kingdom. So Rehoboam replied, Give me three days to think this over, then come back for my answer. So the people went away. I was trying to think about this and think about this scene. And I I wonder if Rehoboam responded to them. All right, hey, give me three days. I'm gonna think about this. I'm gonna take it to the Lord. I'm gonna really pray about it. And then come back and I'll give you my answer. Or I wonder if he was like, (laughs) yeah. Okay, give me three days. We'll think about this thing and then come back and I'll tell you what's really gonna happen. Or maybe it's a mixture of both. It does tell us he went then to some of his father's counselors. It says he discussed, verse six, he discussed the matter with the older men who had counseled his father, Solomon. What is your advice, he asked. How should I answer these people? And the older counselors replied, if you are willing to be a servant to these people today and give them a favorable answer, they will always be your loyal subjects. Good advice, bad advice. Sounds good, right? 
unless maybe you don't want to give up any power. The older counselors, that's, that was their reply. If you are willing to be a servant to these people today and give them a favorable answer, they will always be your loyal subjects. That reminds me a little bit of the words of Jesus later on. It tells us if you want to be first, be last. He said the son of man, talking about himself, he didn't come to be served. He came to serve. They were giving him wise advice. But Rehoboam rejected the advice of the older men and instead asked the opinion of the young men who had grown up with him and were now his advisors. (laughs) He went to his bros and said, hey, what do you guys think? How should I answer the people who want me to lighten the burdens imposed by my father? The young men replied, this is what you should tell those complainers who want a lighter burden. My little finger is thicker than my father's waist. It's kind of a weird analogy. It's a weird looking hand. Anyway, he's trying to say, look, I'm, man, I'm bigger. I'm more imposing than my father. Yes, my father laid heavy burdens on you, but I'm going to make them even heavier. My father beat you with whips, but I will beat you with scorpions. I can just see him in that room. Like, yeah, yeah, let's do that. That sounds awesome. We'll get more money out of them. We're gonna have all this slave labor. Rehoboam took the advice of these young guys instead of the older, the wiser advice of the older counselors. Three days later, Jeroboam and all the people returned to hear Rehoboam's decision, just as the king had ordered. But Rehoboam spoke harshly to the people, for he rejected the advice of the older counselors and followed the counsel of his younger advisors. He told the people, my father laid heavy burdens on you, but I'm going to make them even heavier. My father beat you with whips, but I will beat you with scorpions. I'm not even sure what that looks like, but it sounds pretty bad. So the king paid no attention to the people. This turn of events was the will of the Lord, for it fulfilled the Lord's message to Jeroboam, son of Nebat, through the prophet Ahijah from Shiloh. And when all Israel realized that the king had refused to listen to them, they responded, down with the dynasty of David. We have no interest in the son of Jesse. Back to your homes, O Israel. Look out for your own house, O David. So the people of Israel returned home, but Rehoboam continued to rule over the Israelites who lived in the towns of Judah. King Rehoboam sent Adoniram, who was in charge of forced labor, to restore order. But the people of Israel stoned him to death. And when the news reached King Rehoboam, he quickly jumped into his chariot and fled to Jerusalem. And to this day, the northern tribes of Israel have refused to be ruled by a descendant of David. And when the people of Israel learned of Jeroboam's return from Egypt, they called an assembly and they made him king over all Israel. So only the tribe of Judah remained loyal to the family of David. Solomon's divided heart. And then his son's divided heart, Rehoboam, had the power to divide a kingdom. And so now we have two kingdoms. We have Rehoboam in the southern kingdom, which is essentially the tribe of Judah and the tribe of Benjamin. They remain kind of loyal to to the same guys and they're in the south of Israel. And then we have the northern kingdom ruled by Jeroboam, the other 10 tribes of Israel. Make sense? Okay. Southern kingdom is who? Rehoboam. 
Northern kingdom is who? Jeroboam. I'm gonna quiz you later, okay? You have two kingdoms divided. And Jeroboam has the opportunity to be a good king. In fact, when the Lord had originally appeared to him saying this was going to happen in, uh, in back in chapter 11, you have to turn there. I'm just gonna read these two verses. This is the Lord speaking to Jeroboam. If you listen to what I tell you and follow my ways and do whatever I consider to be right, and if you obey my decrees and my commands as my servant David did, then I will always be with you. I will establish an enduring dynasty for you as I did for David, and I will give Israel to you. Because of Solomon's sin, I will punish the descendants of David, though not forever. I love that little though not forever. I believe that's a little nod to Jesus down the road. But to Jeroboam, he gave him the same chance that he's given everyone else to walk faithfully with him. He said, if you, if you love me, if you obey me and follow my decrees, then I'll give you, an ever, I'll give you a lasting dynasty. Let's look at what Jeroboam did back over in chapter 12. Verse 25 of 12 says this, Jeroboam then built up the city of Shechem in the hill country of Ephraim, and it became his capital. Later, he went and built up the town of Peniel. Jeroboam thought to himself, unless I'm careful, the kingdom will return to the dynasty of David. And when these people go to Jerusalem to offer sacrifices at the temple of the Lord, they will again give their allegiance to King Rehoboam of Judah. They will kill me and make him their king instead. So on the advice of his counselors, the king made two calves. There's bad counsel again. The king made two calves. He said to the people, it's too much trouble for you to worship in Jerusalem. Look, Israel, these are the gods who brought you out of Egypt. Does that sound familiar? Back when the people had first come out of Egypt, Moses was up on Mount Sinai receiving instructions from the Lord and the people were down with his brother Aaron and the people were like, Moses has been gone for like, 40 days, and we don't know what to do. We don't know how to handle this. Who are we gonna worship? And, and so Aaron crafts a golden calf and says, look, Israel, you're God who delivered you out of Egypt. Isn't it funny how history repeats itself? Jeroboam placed these calf idols in Bethel and in Dan at either end of his kingdom, But this became a great sin for the people worshiped the idols traveling as far north as Dan to worship the one there. God told them back in Deuteronomy 17, this is what a king should be. And none of these guys are walking in that. To our knowledge, none of them copied down those instructions and and lived in them daily. And I wonder if they had, if things would have looked different. But now we see a history of a divided kingdom and kings who for the most part did what was evil in the eyes of the Lord. Raleigh, do we have that graphic with all of the, all of the kings? Well, not all of them, but most of them. Bigger graphic, yeah. So on the right, or my right, you're right, yeah. Over here, you have the kings of Israel. And this isn't all of them, this is all that we could get to fit on one slide. All of them, 
did evil, did evil, did evil, did evil. There were a couple that were mixed that started off, but for the most part, they did evil. Over on the left side, you have the kings of Judah. Rehoboam, Abijah, Abijah, Asa, Jehoshaphat. Some of them did what was right in the eyes of the Lord. But many of them followed the ways of Jeroboam. In fact, it, it uses some of that. When you come to a king, they were ones who walked in the ways of Jeroboam, who did what was evil in the eyes of the Lord. Then you get down to this guy named Ahab. <laughs> and the scriptures say about Ahab that he was more evil than all of the kings that had come before him. And I think what mostly set them apart, and especially the, the bright spots, the bright spots, they walked with God. And they did not lead the people to worship other gods. And this is, I think, the principle. If you don't get anything else today, walk away with this statement. A fully committed heart is cultivated when we surrender to the Lord's ways and heart for us. A fully committed heart is cultivated when we surrender to the Lord's ways and his heart for us. None of those kings of Israel surrendered to the Lord's ways and his heart for them. And so they led a people, an entire nation away from the Lord. One of those bright spots that I mentioned was a guy named Asa. I want to tell just a little bit of, of his story as we close. In 2 Chronicles 14, two to five, it, this gives the picture of the character of Asa. Asa did what was pleasing and good in the sight of the Lord as God. He removed the foreign altar, altars and the pagan shrines. He smashed the sacred pillars and cut down the Asherah poles, which were idols, essentially. He commanded the people of Judah to seek the Lord, the God of their ancestors, and to obey his law and his commands. Asa also removed the pagan shrines as well as the incense altars from every one of Judah's towns. So Asa's kingdom enjoyed a period of peace. He even went so far as to depose uh, his grandmother, who was the queen mother, because she worshiped some of these Asherah poles. She didn't tear them down. So like, your position, your status is gone. <laughs> He was that serious about following the ways of the Lord. And then it tells us of an instance where an, an army comes against him of a million men. And in that moment, he cries out to God and said, oh Lord God, there's nothing we can do here. We are totally dependent on you. Would you come? Would you step in? Would you deliver us from these people? And God did in a miraculous way. But then we get a little further down in Asa's life. And in chapter 16 of Second Chronicles, it says this. A prophet came to him from the Lord because he had another instance where a much smaller army was coming against him. And instead of turning to the Lord, he makes a treaty with another nation. And we don't know if he intentionally said, the Lord can't help me here, I gotta turn to this other nation, or if it was just the he just didn't think about turning to the Lord. But this is what this prophet said to him. 
said, because you have put your trust in the king of Aram, that's who he made the treaty with, the king of Aram, instead of in the Lord your God, you missed your chance to destroy the army of the king of Aram. Don't you remember what happened to the Ethiopians and the Libyans and their vast armies, what I was talking about, with all of their chariots and charioteers? At that time, you relied on the Lord and he handed them over to you. The eyes of the Lord search the whole earth in order to strengthen those whose hearts are fully committed to him. What a fool you have been. From now on, you will be at war. I don't think he intentionally turned away from I just think his fear and his circumstances were so, so much bigger than his faith in that moment. And perhaps little by little, he had kind of turned his eyes away from the Lord. He didn't remember the commands of the Lord and, and, and walk in them daily. And he was overcome. And I can be pretty harsh on him, I think. So how could you, you forgot. What a fool you have been, as the prophet said to him. But we do the same thing, right? We've seen God do things in our lives. And then we come up against something that's bigger than our faith. And we search for other ways out. Instead of a fully committed heart that is surrendered to the Lord's ways and his heart for us. What does surrender look like? I think some of it looks like to those instructions that God gave back to the king, gave to the king back in Deuteronomy 17. Spending time daily in the scriptures and asking the Lord to divine who I am, to define my status and my position. It looks like not thinking too highly of myself. It looks like when I come up against a situation that seems so much bigger than my faith of just returning back like we saying earlier, returning back to the Lord and saying, nothing else will do. It's gotta be you. It's gotta be you. Lord, I surrender my thoughts, my hopes, my dreams to your hopes, your dreams, your desires for me. And sometimes that's easy. You know, we, from experience in our lives, in our family, you know, there have been times where we've come up against something and we just cried out to God and, and seen him provide or, or to move in pretty cool ways and in pretty immediate ways. But there have been other times where it feels like it's taken years to see even an answer from God. But I've learned it's when I continue to return and surrender even though I may not see the resolution yet, that my heart, my kingdom, my inner kingdom is at peace. Just like it was for Asa when he was fully committed to the Lord. So I wanna close with a couple of questions. The first one, thinking about Rehoboam and Jeroboam, whose counsel are you listening to? 
Whose advice are you taking? Is advice from brothers and sisters in Christ who maybe are a little further down the road from you? Is it the advice of the scriptures? Or does it come from other sources? Does it come from sources that do not have your best at heart? Where is your counsel coming from? Is your heart, here's the second question, is your heart divided or fully committed to the Lord? Is his gaze drawn to you? Just like that prophet said to Asa, hey, the eyes of the Lord are searching the whole earth to strengthen those whose hearts are fully committed to him. Is that your heart or is your heart divided? And sometimes I think we can even be walking in that kind of fully committed path, but yet there are still parts of our hearts that are divided. And so I wanna give you a practice for this week, something to do. Take some time this week, set aside some time to sit with Jesus and to be silent before the Lord. I think that's good every day, but at least one day this week, take some intentional time for this, to sit in silence before the Lord and pray through these questions. Lord, do I have a divided heart or is my heart fully committed to you? Lord, do I have a divided heart or, or am I truly fully committed to you? In what areas of my life do I have a divided heart? And in prayer and in listening and in silence, ask the Lord to help you surrender his ways and his heart for you. Just let God inform that. Speak into that. There's some scripture in Psalm 139. Uh, the psalmist David says, says, search me, O Lord, and see if there's anything in me that's not pleasing to you. And maybe learn from the history of these evil kings, those who didn't walk with the Lord. We uh, have been doing kind of a, a time of invitation. It's gonna look a little different this morning. Um, I'm not gonna stand down front. And uh, if there's something that you need, that you would like somebody to pray for you, we're gonna ask that you would go back to the prayer room today uh, for that, either now or, or in just a minute or later after the service. But our friends are gonna lead us in a song. We want you to kind of stand and, and think about the words of these songs. Yeah, you can go ahead and stand. That's cool. Sing along with them. Or just begin to give time and space for the Lord to, to speak into these questions in your heart. And if you want to, you can come down and kneel and, and, and pray for the Lord. Sometimes that physical representation of stepping out does something, solidifies something in our hearts and minds. So if you want to do that, you can. And they're going to sing and then we're going to come back and we'll close out. But I'd love for you to begin to think, what does surrender look like in my life? Because a fully committed heart is cultivated 
when we surrender to God's ways and his heart for us. Hey guys, thanks so much for checking us out online today. If you want more information about the church or things that's going on here, be sure to check out theriverCC.com or download our app and visit us there. Also, as we go through the Bible this year, we want to help keep you engaged on what's being read and talked about each week. To do that, we have a podcast called The Word This Week, which will recap each week's readings as well as have special guests who will talk about what God showed them that week. So be sure to check that out on all podcast streaming platforms. And again, thanks so much for checking us out online.